we've been a few weeks apart now, um, more than a few. Uh, hopefully your break was good. Hopefully you all missed me and wanted to come back to us. Uh, and we finished, last time we were here, Romans 8, uh, the latter part, and, and it's really one of the best biblical homilies or passages or doxologies on the love of God, right? We saw uh, beginning in verse 38, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him um, who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor past, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that's really, when we talk about the love of Jesus, when we talk about the love of God, when we as Christians think about love, this is one of the big passages that comes to mind here. And it really is, what a great love. And what Paul is doing now, having just finished that, Paul's going to tell us why that love is powerful. And that's important. Why is love powerful? What does Christ's love do? Because everyone loves to ascribe power to love, right? We love to ascribe power to love. Um, we sing songs about love pulling us through, love keeping us together, love overcoming, love doing, love accomplishing. You've, also, you've all probably heard, maybe not as I get older, the classic poet, Mr. Huey Lewis, say, the power of love is a curious thing. Make a one man weep and another man sing. Change a hawk to a little white dove. It's more than a feeling. That's the power of love, right? And we all acknowledge some vague form of power, but what is that power? What's the power of love? When culture turns to it and they're acknowledging that love has this ability to do something for us, what is that? Because we see love fail a lot, right? If love is so powerful, why does it fail so frequently? T. Swift is always reminding us that love always fails. After every new boyfriend, after every new album, love fails. We see divorce, we see infidelity, we see serial relationships. Love claims to power us, but we all know the failure of love, right? In Titanic, Rose's love said she'd never let go of Jack, but hypothermia said otherwise. Love fails. In all sorts of different settings, we run into a love that doesn't conquer all. The problem is not that love fails, but that we don't actually know what real love is. And when we fail to understand what love is, that love will lack power. It will lack endurance. That love will lack love. It'll lack any form of substance. And that's because so often, we let TV and movies and radio and, and books and teenage hormones define for us what love is, but that love's a facade. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't endure. It isn't powerful. It might be motivating. It might be real emotions in your heart, but it's not true love. And all of us, we either know that now through having been hurt by love, or you will know that at some point, having suffered with love. And that's outside of church. The unfortunate thing is that inside of church, the same thing is true often. It's very common for us to sing songs about the love of God, and we should. We should, as Christians, we should get up on a mountain and scream the love of God to the world. But I find it really troubling that more and more of our songs sing about love, but don't define what love is. Isn't that weird? When we start, if someone were to walk into our church and they were to hear these songs about love, passionate, great, musical, stirring songs about love, what would they think that love is about? What would they tie that affection to? What is the love of God? Is it just this same cultural emotive power that we sing about on the radio, and now we're just singing about it towards God? If your worship songs could be sung in a weird way to your girlfriend, they're bad worship songs. If the same love you're describing towards a cosmic creator savior can be applied to your best friend, you're not singing about the God of the Bible anymore. So what does the love of God mean for us as Christians? What does the love of God mean for us as non-Christians? And how does it change us and shape us? Romans 9, where we are tonight, Romans 9, 
will define love for us, according to God. It's going to, to push past the noise of a shallow love and show us the deep, deep love of Jesus, the love which is powerful and changing. And here's what we're going to see tonight, okay? Tonight is about knowing in better detail the love of God and how he loves us. And what we're going to see is knowing how God loves, it humbles us, it empowers us, and it endures us. You see, the hope and power in a Christian life cannot come from vague, generalized views of God. If you don't know what the love of God is in your life, you will fail to have sustained worship, you will fail to have sustained joy, and if you have a vague view of love, you might even fail to get salvation. Because God is not indefinite. God is not vague. God is detailed. But when we have a definite scope of love, the, lo the scope of love and the definition that God's given us in Scripture, we're going to endure. And we're going to look at three aspects of God's love today in Romans 9. We're going to see the history of God's love, the holiness of God's love, and the scandal of God's love. That last one killed me because I had this H thing going, and then it just turned into an S. So um, hopefully God will redeem that. We're going to look at the history of love, holiness of love, and the scandal of God's love. Um, so let's pray that God's gracious and kind to us tonight and gives us um, clarity as we look at his word. God, we come before you, um, and so many things happen in the week, and so many things are sitting on our minds that it's so often um, that we invert priorities, we invert authority, we invert worship in our own mind, and we come in um, thinking about uh, things that we seem to be more important than God. Oftentimes that is us and our desires and our motivations and our zeal and our goals and our time, but Lord, we pray tonight that you may grant us a spirit of submission, that we may be humble and submit to what you say about your love and where we find ourselves in that story. Lord, we ask for your grace, we ask for discernment and hope as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, we're looking at Romans 9, verses 1 through 29 today, and the first thing we want to look at is Romans 1, or 9, verses 1 through, through 5. Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Sidebar, uh, where does Scripture claim that Jesus is God? Uh, Romans, one of the places, Romans 9 verse 5, uh, whose heir is Christ, who is God overall. So there's a little theological nugget for you. Um, anyway, so quick background here. Paul is writing this book uh, to people in Rome, and Paul is writing as a Jew. He was born a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He was practiced in Judaism. He did temple things. He wanted to preserve the purity of Judaism, but God reached out to Paul this one who was persecuting the Christian church, and in an instant, he converted him to love and worship Jesus. And he says, you who persecuted me, I will cause you to suffer for my name's sake, and you will be the tool through which I win the Gentiles. And so during this time, the majority of people who believe in Jesus are not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're not Jewish in terms of ethnicity or heritage. They're Gentiles. They're, they're non-Jews. They're Greeks. Um, they're Palestinians. Um, they're all sorts of different races. And here we see that the Jews are really struggling to see Jesus as the Messiah because they thought when the Messiah would come, he'd set up this, he'd, he'd Donald Trump it, right? He'd make Israel great again. Um, and uh, it didn't happen. Jesus didn't come, that was not an endorsement of Donald Trump, okay? Um, that's the opposite of an endorsement of Donald Trump, in case you're wondering. Uh, they thought Jesus would make this kingdom of Israel. And when he died on a cross, and we talked about this kingdom of God that didn't bring all the Jews up on a pedestal among the nations, so like, that guy's not the Messiah. And they didn't believe in him. And they rejected Jesus as the true Messiah. And we see here, we see Paul's missionary heart. It breaks his heart. If I could be cut off and accursed for the sake of my kinsmen, I could wish that. He mourns over their lack of belief. 
And then he goes, to them was given the promise, the covenant, the adoption, all the goodness, the promise that God would restore his people, the promise that God would not let them be destroyed, the promise that God would bring his kingdom, the promise that God would crush the serpent, the promise that God would save. He spoke that to the Jewish nation. And here are those very people whom God promised deliverance who are actively rejecting him. The whole Old Testament, I will make you, I will make you, I will make you. And here we have God's Messiah attempting to make and his people stiff-arming him and keeping him at a distance. So does this mean that God failed to love his people well? Does this mean that God's word failed? If God promised to restore his people and his people rejected him, does that mean that God's promise is weak? That the people are stronger than God? That the logic of men is greater than the logic of God? And this is the question that Paul is going to answer tonight. And he, the first thing he's going to point to is the history of God's love. We see this history in Paul answering this question um, in Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children, or not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. This means that it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if you're not super familiar with Old Testament history, that was probably a really confusing interwoven passage. Um, so let's, let's kind of recap and walk through what just happened. In Genesis 12, the first book of your Bible, in Genesis 12, God comes to this desert wanderer, uh, then named Abram, who will, who will one day be named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you children and from your children will come kings. And from your children will come so many children. They'll be as numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And they will grow to be my people. And this promise was true. The problem was, is Abraham was a realist. And he stepped back and he looked at himself and he's really old. He looked at his wife. And his wife was really old. So what he did is he took his maidservant, the younger maidservant, and he says, well, I'm not going to be able to make a baby with my wife. She's past childbirthing age. So I'm going to take Hagar, my maidservant, and I'm going to get her pregnant, and that will be the child through which God will bless us. And so he didn't think that God understood biology, right? Because he's just the creator and put us all together. Um, and so he's like, God, you don't understand biology, so let me take matters into my own hands, and I'll make a child a promise, and we'll keep going in the covenant. But that child, whose name was Ishmael, Though he was a child of Abraham, that was the promise, through your children. Though he was a child of Abraham, he didn't receive the blessing of God's people. Ishmael wasn't blessed. Because just as God promised, Abraham's barren old wife, I wonder if she likes being called Abraham's barren old wife, like she's up in heaven and that's how people refer to Sarah. One thing you know about Sarah, guys, she was old and barren. Her eggs don't work, okay? Um, but uh, she was, God, God impregnates her through Abraham. It's a miracle. She becomes pregnant and she bears a son named Isaac. And God says to Abraham, through Isaac, you will be blessed. Through Isaac, my people will come. Reflecting on this, Paul goes on to say what we just read in Romans, that not all children of Abraham, children of promise, are truly children of Abraham meaning not everyone born of Abraham is born of God. There were two people. There was Ishmael and there was Isaac. Both were ethnic um, kids of Abraham, but only one was a spiritual child of Abraham. Now, this would make sense, right? Because we, we see some big dichotomies um, or some big differences here, right? Because Ishmael was conceived in sin. He was conceived because Abraham doubted. He was conceived because Abraham committed adultery. He was conceived because Abraham took advantage of someone. Where Isaac, Isaac was a child of faithfulness. Isaac was the child that came with the way God desired him to come. 
So it makes sense here, right? Well, naturally, God's going to choose the one that he desired, the one that came through the faithful means. So we can't put too much on God choosing Isaac, but not choosing Ishmael. But then Paul gives another example. He then talks about Isaac's children. And so we have this promise from Abraham. This promise goes to Isaac, and Isaac um, gets his wife, Rebecca, pregnant with twins. So Ishmael, different mom, same dad. Isaac, different mom, same dad. But now we have Isaac and Rebecca with twins. So these two twins, let's call them Jordan and Logan, um, they had the exact same parents, okay? And so where we saw differences in Jacob and, or in uh, Isaac and Ishmael, there's similarities here. And he goes out of his way to talk about the similarities between these boys. And typically in that day, the birthright, the promise, the blessing will go to the firstborn, Logan, not Jordan. Um, and so what would happen is whichever baby was born first, he would be the one who would carry on the lineage. He would be the one that would be blessed. He would get the birthright. He would continue. He would carry the name. He would be the child of promise. And when Rebecca had twins, Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. But the blessing went to Jacob. You see that? Look at Romans 9, 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, that's Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, the younger I loved, but Esau, the older I hated. Okay, this is big. Two boys, same dad, same mom, same birthday, same, same starting slate, one wasn't worse in the womb than the other. One didn't jab the ribs while the other sat nicely. One didn't get her sick while the other was content. Same history. But God chose one, not the other. Not by natural means of just choosing the firstborn, but actually choosing by unnatural means the younger. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And Paul says this, very important aside. Why did he do this? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau. It says in verse 11, in order that the purpose of God's election might continue, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls. See, when we look at the history of God's love, God's love is a choosing, calling love. That's the narrative of the Old Testament. You see this all throughout it. God chose Abraham, not his cousin Lot. God chose Isaac, not his brother Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. Judah, not Reuben. Jesse, not Kish. David, not Eliab. Solomon, not Absalom. God always chose of equal things to send his affection, to send his blessing to one specific branch of all these people who are still the sons of Abraham. Though there were many ethnic people, God chose a spiritual people inside of that. God's love... And God's blessing through the history of the Old Testament was not first come, first serve. It was based off God's free choice to choose that individual. He made a promise, but he didn't act on that promise by just accepting whoever would come his way who earned and qualified for that promise. He acted on that promise by choosing to love people and therefore enduring his promise. And I would argue this. I would argue that the, the only real love you'll ever know, the only true love, is a choosing love. Is a love which intentionally chooses. And this view of love is really abrasive to us because it doesn't make good chick flicks, right? We, we've all fallen prey to this myth called the one. You all know this, right? That somewhere out there is this one. That's the whole premise of the How I Met Your Mother TV show. There's this one soulmate that Ted's going to find. And we all know the drill. We hope that one day we accidentally drop our cafeteria tray and we bump into someone and our hands touch and we look and there are cupids and angels everywhere and true love takes us captive. We fall desperately in love and they make a movie and we have kids and we live happily ever after. That's true love. That's an accident. <laughs> to fall in love with someone is an accident. It's not by choice. It's not by volition. 
It's, it, it, you see, it's, it, the wording even sounds passive. I fell in love with you like I fell in a hole in the ground. Walking along, didn't see it, and oops, the ground's gone. Here I am. Love me. Love me. Say that you love me. I should stop singing. Um, and and see, see, what if I, I love my wife? And I've, sent a, I've expressed my love to Sarah in many ways. Um, but I can honestly tell you this. I've never gone up to Sarah and I've said, babe. I wouldn't call her babe. Um, I said, I love you because I fell in love with you. It sounds cute. It sounds nice. It sounds like I should tweet that. But what am I really saying at that point, right? First of all, it's saying that I don't really have control over anything that's going on. I'm just this fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants emotion guy. I fell in love with you. I had this weird tingling in my heart. It made my, their palpitations and sweat and hair, and, and I was just like, that's the one. That's the one I'm going to love. The basis of my love for you is me falling prey to something totally outside of my own volition and will. The reason I love you is because I was captured by a feeling. The reason I love you is because this experience is currently good. What happens when the experience is bad? What happens when I fall out of love with her? What happens when there's another hole in the ground, another woman I run into? What happens when the feelings fade? What happens when the road gets narrow? How much more loving is it if I look my wife in the eye and say, I love you because of out of all of the other women in this world, I'm choosing to love you. I'm committing for the rest of my life to willfully with the whole of myself love you, cherish you, and enjoy you for the rest of my days. Which of those two propositions is more loving? Which of those two propositions lets Sarah know that I'm not going to stop loving her? It's not this mystical, free love bug that travels around zapping us and unzapping us. It's me in the trenches, in day-to-day -day life, waking up in the morning and saying, Sarah did something that irked my selfish heart last night, and I'm still going to love her. How do I know I'm going to love my wife tomorrow? Because I'm going to wake up and I'm going to choose to love her. Not based off how she's acting to me or how she's responding, but because I'm willfully choosing to love her. And nothing can take that away from me. You see, choosing love is real love. I want to step outside the narrative here and give just a practical implication on how God love shapes how we love. And I want to speak to those of you in here who are single or at least not married, which is the majority of you. Don't worry. I want to lift this burden off of you right now. I want you to leave here floating in the air because you no longer have this hanging over your head. Don't worry about finding your one true soulmate. There, if, if you're going to get married, there is one for you. And it's not this magical match. It's just that God's sovereign and he knows you're going to get married. And so the one you're going to marry is the one God wants you to marry. That's the one, okay? God controls the one. Culture doesn't control the one. But here's the thing. Men, find a woman who loves God and commit yourself to loving her. Leave no room in your life for falling out of love. Leave no room in your heart for marrying the wrong person. Leave no shred of doubt. Close the door so tightly. Find your future wife and choose to love her with the whole of who you are. Stop dating for five years trying to see if this is the one you're going to love. Trying to feel it out. Is this love going to last? Love lasts when you choose it to last. Choose to love someone. Decide if you want to love her and love her to reckless abandon. Decide you want to love her and commit to her in being faithful and loving and selfless and wonderfully ordinary the rest of your life. That's how you love a woman. Women, look for a guy who does that. Look for a man who ought to be quick to say I love you because you're not talking about soap operas for the first year of dating, but you're talking about who that person is and what their view of God is. That's a romantic love. That's a real love. That's a love that they'll write about in books. Maybe not in Hollywood, but when you've been married for 60 years and everyone else is divorced, you have a legacy that no one else can look at. That's the love of God manifesting itself in the people of God. Back to Romans. <laughs> um, when we observe the history of God's love, what Paul wants us to see here is what we just discussed. That God's electing is the word he uses. 
This choosing, electing love is true love ultimately effective. It's not only the truest love, but it's an effective love. It's a love that accomplishes something. It's a love that's powerful. See, God creates a people by choosing to love him or by choosing to love them. God's people don't come to him and then he chooses to love them. God doesn't find a people and say, these are my people. God loves a person and makes them into a people because he loved them. You see, Abraham failed to think that God's love was effective, didn't he? he God gave him this promise, but he's like, I mean, certainly you know I'm not gonna have a, a baby with my wife, Sarah, old Baron Sarah. Um, so I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. He thought that God would promise, but he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But when God promised to bless Abraham through his offspring, God wasn't saying, if it just so happens that one day you have a kid, I'll choose to bless you through that. God was saying in promising to love him that his love would be effective to accomplish that promise. God literally loved his people into existence by promising to make them a people. Now, this is really easy to affirm in third-person history, right? We look at the Old Testament. We see God choosing and ordaining and ruling and governing and, and, and intermingling with his people. And we like it. And we have to acknowledge it. It's there. We can't, we can't avoid it. But the problem is, is when we start looking at God's choice, start looking at God's sovereignty, we start looking at God's election, we start looking at God's control from a first-person perspective, then we start to come up with excuses, Right? Then we try to start to distance ourselves from it. This is when we even, at our worst, we take offense to it. You see, it's easy to counsel and comfort others by saying, you know what? God's in control of this. He's going to get you through it. This is for, this is for Romans 8, 20, uh, 28, right? Um, all things work together for good. This is for your good. God's going to do it. God's strong. It's harder to tell that to yourself, isn't it? Because we like to be in control. We like to think that it's our task, that it's our job, that it's our glory, that it's our plans, that it's our goals, that it's our joy, that it's our desire, that it's our world, that it's our right. Who are you to tell me who I am and how I am best to be loved? And this is where Paul turns from the history of Israel to the heart of his hearers that he's writing to. And he brings up two excuses against um, people who are worried about God's choosing love. Two excuses that you might hear today or even have today. The first excuse is that this isn't fair. It's not fair that God gets to choose to love somebody. The second excuse is that, well, if God chooses, God's in control, why does it matter? Our choices don't matter. Why can he judge me if he's the one who's choosing things? And this is where Paul talks about the holiness of God's love the holiness of God's love. Here's what we have to understand here. When we're reading Romans 9, we're not reading a self-help book on love. We're not reading a guide to power couples written by Dr. So-and-so. We're reading and we're talking about God himself, the creator of all things, the one who orchestrated salvation, the one who wired together the hearts of man, the one who 1 John describes as God is love and goes on later to say that we love because he first loved us. The God who is the basis of love, the definition of love, the sole proprietor of love, the creator of love, and the most lovely lover of love. This means who controls the narrative of what love is? God does. God knows what love is. God alone. Taylor Swift doesn't know. Nicholas Sparks doesn't know. John Mayer doesn't know. God decides what love is because God is ultimate. God is definite. And if we think we could find a better love, then you really don't understand God at all. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's pure. There's no better person who's existed in triune community, loving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity past and all eternity future. There is no more competent or qualified person to define love than God himself. And the love that God created is the best love. Bar none. The love that has the best feelings, 
the love that has the best experiences, but the love that has the best mundane reminders of why we love. And it's set apart. That's what holy means. It's different. So often we define love based on what we see in our hearts, what we feel in our lives, but we need to remember there's a holy aspect of God's love. It's different from us because it's from the divine. It's part of the image of God instilled in us, and it's wholly set apart. That means to best understand love, the love of God, we must understand who God is. This is where Paul discusses the first excuse, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Right, that's the one phrase that preachers are supposed to say in Greek, meganoito. Um, don't know why, but everyone does it. Um, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Big question that he asks here. Big question you need to consider as we start evangelizing to people, as we start sharing the gospel, as we start talking about the way in which God loves us. Is it unfair that God chooses Jacob and not Esau? Is it unfair that God chooses some people and not other people? By no means. No. Why is that? Because the basis of God's salvation isn't justice. It's mercy. You see, God doesn't need to intervene on hearts in order to harden them. We do a good job of that on our own. God doesn't need to help us to sin because sometimes, to the best, contrary to what we desire, we just end up doing good. You see, here we see that it was God. Paul, point, or, yeah, Paul points to, to the exodus of Moses and Pharaoh. And here it says explicitly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart for this purpose that I might glorify myself. Romans 9, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do we see when we read Exodus? Pharaoh hardened his heart. See, Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do. Pharaoh wasn't like, man, I really want to let these people go, but there's some mysterious force in my life that's forcing these words to come out of my mouth to say no. Something's forcing me to whip and murder and rape these people. No, Pharaoh was doing exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. But there's this tension between him doing exactly what God wanted Pharaoh to do. See, there's compatibility between God's choosing love and man's free choices. God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do. If you ran that scenario of the Exodus a hundred million times over again, a hundred million times, Pharaoh would do exactly what he wanted to do. And God got exactly what he wanted from Pharaoh, his glory. You see, isn't it, don't you, so just one second where we can look at God's sovereignty. We all, if you go to VBS, there's the 10 plagues, right? The 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn, where the firstborn dies in order to save and grant release of the Israelites. And we say, hey, that sounds a lot like the gospel, right? Jesus dies in order to free those who are captive. Through the death of the firstborn, a people go free. Do you think God just got lucky with the 10th plague? Like plague number one, uh, let's give them gnats, boils, frogs, uh, darkness, darkness, let's do darkness. See if they'll let the people go. And then he's like, okay, let's kill their firstborn. Oh my goodness, it worked. And oh my goodness, that's just like the gospel. This is great. Why were there 10 plagues? Because nine times before that, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to build to the shadow of the gospel in the 10th plague for God's glory. And you know what? God could have delivered Israel on plague one, but Israel was more grateful because of the severity of plague 10. You see, the condemnation of Pharaoh was not unjust. No one looks at Pharaoh and says, man, why did God do that to Pharaoh? Pharaoh was a bad person. Pharaoh had sin in his heart. 
Pharaoh murdered. Pharaoh was a horrible person. You know what was unjust? The salvation of Israel. Israel had rejected God. That's why they're in Egypt. Israel had forgotten God. They were hardened against God. Israel was filled with idolaters, murderers. One who came back. That's what Moses was. He murdered one. And God chose him to come back and bring his people out. Israel was full of unfaithful worshipers who a few weeks out of Egypt end up making another idol. But God chose to have mercy on them. We can't escape the question of injustice. But the question of injustice doesn't exist because people go to hell. The question of injustice exists because some people get to go to heaven. That's been the point of Romans so far, right? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the salvation of God. Romans 7.8, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Indeed, they cannot. You see, if God just let man go after we sinned in Genesis 3 and we rejected him, we all would have faced the same judgment Pharaoh faced, being condemned for our actions. That's what would happen if God let go. That's the natural course of events. That's justice. But God intervened. And this eliminates the second point Paul brings up in Romans 9, 19, where he says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God's in control of everything, if God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, why is Pharaoh responsible for it? You see, if God controls our heart, why are we guilty of sin? You're guilty of sin because you're a sinner and your heart wants to sin. That's what your heart does. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. You're guilty because you're a sinner. Paul's already said this, Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. Apart from God, no one will worship God. God. Our hearts, Jeremiah says, our hearts desire evil continually. The heart is wicked above all things. Who could know it? But Paul goes on. Listen to Romans 9, 20 through 24. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make vessels, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles." So this passage is a difficult passage. Not because it's hard to understand, but because it's too easy to understand. This is a difficult passage because it corrects two things. It corrects our overinflated view of self, and it inflects our small, infantile view of God. What this text goes to say are things that we hate. You're small, you're finite, you're created, you're not in charge. And it reminds us that God is sovereign, God is creator, God is infinite, God is potter. And we see in this text that God has created two kinds of people. And we all know this. We start describing them, it sounds awful. And, and the pros- Paul is grieving over the prospect of those who won't inherit salvation. But we all have to come to grips with the reality that there are some people we know who never believe in Jesus. And then there are people who believe in Jesus. There are two categories for existence. Those who love and worship Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And here Paul calls them one instruments or vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. But here's the thing. Both of those resulted in God's glory. Did you see that? Look back, Romans, 22 verse, uh, Romans 9, 22 through 24. Really good. Listen to this text. What if God, this isn't like, hey, could this happen? He's obviously telling us this is what's happened. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Double glory, right? To make known the riches of glory prepared beforehand for glory. God gets 
glory. God is not robbed of glory. The sovereign creator is not robbed of praise or majesty by anything, even what seems to be defeat. Do you see that? You see, what this text says is that everyone, what, what, what we know from the rest of Romans, what we're going to see in Romans 10 is that everyone who is saved is saved because they believe and confess. But Paul is making it very clear here that everyone who believes, believes because God has chosen them as a vessel of mercy. And when we realize that the praise of our lips is from the sovereign hand of God, we find true hope for everything in life. Look back, again, verse 22 through 24. Whose glory is God actually talking about here? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? When you understand that God has reached into your life and saves you, when you bring on that truth, you realize that everything that happens in your life, whether it's enduring with patience, hardship, and evil, and trial, and suffering, and loss, ultimately, it's so that God may reveal to you the infinite riches of his glory. That's powerful, enduring love. That's transcending, suffering, changing truth. That's not me trying to make this something it's not. That's God defining real love, true love, saving love, God's love. That's the power of love. But that's often why scholars call it the difficult doctrine of the love of God because it so minimizes us to maximize God to where our joy isn't found in our own righteousness, but in God's grace and unending mercy towards us. It humbles us, it presses us, and it endures us. Why are you a believer? Why are you not a believer? This text tells us if you believe, it's because God has been infinitely merciful to you before you were even conceived because God is a loving God. This is the final point tonight. This is the scandal of God's love. We have to remember, Paul started out by pointing to Israel, right? They had everything. If there's anybody who would be saved, it would be Israel. They had the promise, the covenant, the laws, the sacrifices, the temple, the nationality. Yet here we are, 30 years after Jesus' death, and the majority of them didn't believe. Can you imagine how disheartening that would be to Paul? Man, God, you made me a missionary, and all the church kids don't even believe. But that's because there's no such thing as an atmosphere conducive to salvation, only a God who chooses to save. Nothing on this earth outside of God will lead you to salvation. You see, there's great danger in finding comfort by belonging to Christianity without ever belonging to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about with the Jews. They felt like they got it right. They were raised around it. They knew it. They went to church. They were good boys. But they were an ethnic people, not a spiritual people. And it, we can easily become so comfortable in our family history. My grandpa was a Christian. My dad was a Christian. I'm a Christian. My kids will be Christians. In our morality, I don't do this, but I do do this. I would never do that because I do this. Or even in our zeal, I'm a passionate person. I love God. I worship God. But if you do not belong to Christ, if when you talk about that love, you don't see Christ on the cross for you, then you are deceived. Because to be in love with things that God creates or to be in love with things that God has purposed, but to not be in love with God himself is to miss the joy of salvation. If we do not see that it was Christ who pursued us, not us who pursued Christ, then we do not know the love of God. And look at what my favorite part of this passage, look at what Paul says here in Romans 9, 25 through 26. He begins to quote the prophet Hosea. 
As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Though And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. What a humbling passage. See, we always think that, well, we were the people. Why wouldn't God want us? Why wouldn't God want Israel? Why wouldn't God want my morality? Why wouldn't God want GCF? But God called out to a people who were not a people. God called out to people who were far off. God doesn't call those those who have merited his favor. He didn't call those who looked good. That's because that's not worthy of worship, is it? If we truly believe that we're saved because we found God and we came to God and he tested the fidelity of our faith and upon inspection, he accepted us into salvation where we to spend eternity with him, we can't really worship. What's, what's amazing about that? That's not grace. That's not mercy. That's logic. That's requirements. That's passing the exam. When I go into Costco, and I love going into Costco, when I walk into Costco, I don't enter into this and just start praising corporate Costco for letting me browse in bulk. Who am I to be able to buy 2,600 hot dog buns for a nickel? Who am I to be able to get pants for $9 that you would let me into your graces? I paid for that membership. I'm supposed to belong there. That's not awe-inspiring. That's not gracious. That's capitalism. That's requirements. That's regulations. That's legalism. That's earning. And yet so often, that's how we think about our salvation. How great is it that I've found God? How lucky is it that God has me? You see, God didn't save those who merited his favor through means of mercy or performance. He didn't die for those who deserved it, earned it, or lived in a near enough proximity to it. Jesus came for those who were far off. Jesus came for those who were dead in sin. Jesus came for those who would never choose him lest he first chose them. Jesus called those who were never a people to be a people, those who are not beloved to be beloved, those who are not counted righteous to be counted righteous with his love. He made them righteous. Look at immediately what happens, Romans 9, 27 through 29. He again quotes Isaiah. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, everyone knows that, right? That's the city that was destroyed for their wickedness. And Paul does something different with the text here. The actual Isaiah passage he quotes, it says, if God had not left us, a few people, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But here Paul, knowing what Christ has done, looks at the true meaning of Isaiah and he says, if God had not left us without offspring. In, in English, offspring can be a plural um, or a singular word. But in Greek, we could see offspring singular. You see, if the Lord had not left us, with Jesus as the true offspring of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Abraham, we would be destroyed. But because Jesus came, because it wasn't the remnant of Israel that saved us, it wasn't this good group of holy people who loved the word and worshiped enough that it was contagious and people saw that worship and went out and worshiped. It's because Christ came, the offspring came, the offspring died, the offspring rose again, and the offspring purchased his people. You see, the basis of God's love for us, the power of God's love in your life isn't talking much of love without knowing what it is. It's knowing you need to point to the Savior who came and died for your sins in order to actively make you the people of God. You see, the cross isn't a hopeful invitation. It's a hostile takeover of the sinful soul. Jesus isn't a candidate for your vote. He's a hunter for your soul, which means when you come before God with worship in your heart, you are coming as a miracle. You are coming as a dead man walking a blind man seeing 
thanks to the mercy of God who reached into your deadness and resurrected you by the resurrection of Christ. That love endures because God chose it. So endure. Two things in closing real quick. One, we need to marvel at this definition of God's love. We need to let this resonate deeply inside of us. A God-first theology. When we sing of God's love, do you sing of an emotion you don't know? When you think of God's love, do you think of a vague picture of the cross? But do you understand that that cross overcame your dead heart? Do we find great confidence that we will not be rejected because Jesus has chosen me? Do you point at the cross and say, there is my hope, there is my sacrifice, there is my faith, there is my belief? Because only when we can point to the cross does Romans 8 make sense. That's the love that will not be separated. That's the love that cannot be touched. That's the love that though we are slaughtered, we sing the praises of Jesus. That's the love that though when it is hard, we choose to evangelize. That's the love that humbles us. And secondly, this love empowers us to go forth with the gospel. For if God is the God of salvation, no one is immune from his glory. If God saved you, he could save anyone. That means if God is in control of salvation, I have just as much power in converting my son Owen as I do of converting the most hardened Muslim in Iraq. God doesn't care about the hardness of a person's heart because Christ is greater. And Christ will save his people. If Jesus called us, he's capable of calling others. That means that when we look at the University of Montana campus and we start to evangelize, we don't evangelize in fear. We don't evangelize in this vague hope. We evangelize in confidence, knowing that there are people on this campus who God has called, God has chosen, and through his church and through his message, he will wonderfully undo the bounds of sin on that person's heart. What a great salvation. What a great love. You see, the beauty of the love of Romans 9 is that it assures the gospel will win because God has a powerful love. He will get glory in your life and in the life of others. So rejoice, be humble, be overwhelmed, be pressed, be awkward, be confronted, but be loved by the God who has loved us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have um, not only made it possible, but you've ensured that we would be your people. And so, Lord, I pray as we consider our own salvation that we would be in awe that the emotions we have towards you, that the, the conscious reality, that the confession we hold, that the truths we believe are not because we are brighter, smarter, more charitable, more lovely, or deserving of it, but because you came to the people who didn't deserve it. You had mercy on us. You had grace on us. You brought us to life. And Lord, I pray for us as we evangelize that the doctrine of your election and of a choosing God pushes us not to be content knowing that God will save whoever he wants to save apart from means, but knowing that because you have chosen people, we go boldly and we proclaim the gospel in truth to those who have already been called so that they too may confess, believe, and be saved. Thank you for saving us from our hearts. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen.